you all would, open your Bibles to two places tonight, 1 Samuel 22 and then 2 Samuel 23, 1 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23. beginning in 1 Samuel. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them, And there were with him about 400 men. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. And we'll begin reading in verse 8. Actually, sorry, verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well at Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, And carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Pray with me. God, we ask that you through your spirit, would open up your word that we might understand and receive it. But God, we ask for so much more than intellectual knowledge. We want to be shaped by your word. Through your spirit, we want you to breathe life into us, transform us. And so we ask that that would happen in this moment. I pray that my words would fall to the ground, would blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain. May they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We've been studying the life of David for about eight weeks now. And one of the reasons that we are studying him is because so much of who Jesus is and understanding who Christ is comes from an understanding of David. The terms that we use, Messiah, well, that was used of David. Jesus was often called the son of David. He will reign forever uh, on the kingdom promised to David. Um, This past week we had Easter, and I don't want you to ever think that what we're studying now is a somehow a disconnect continuation of what we started in Easter when we're talking about the resurrection. We've talked about the resurrection. We've talked about Jesus, but now we're shifting gears and talking about David. That's not the case. The two go hand in hand. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 2.8, he says this, 
Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And so when Paul wants to put the gospel in in just a little nutshell, he says this, remember Jesus Christ, or Jesus the anointed one, he is risen from the dead and he is the offspring of David. That's my gospel. Understand those two things together. And so, so understanding David and David's life and the promises that God made to David and what God was trying to establish through the life of David, those things are crucial if we were to understand the work of Jesus. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we have last been in David, so let me kind of catch us up to speed. Uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, came to David and anointed him. If you remember, anointed him as king, and he was just a boy. And when that happened, the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And after that happened, David's life fell apart. Uh, Before then, he had lived an obscure but but a peaceful life, a good life, and then he's, he's anointed, he's filled with the Spirit, and then everything is just uh, crazy. When we come to this point in 1 Samuel 22, it begins by saying David escaped. This is now the eighth time David has had to escape from something. People have been trying to kill him. Saul has sent assassins to him. Saul personally has tried to spear him to the wall two times. He has had now to leave his wife He has had to leave his best friend, and now he has no home, he has no job, and he is going to live in a cave. At this point, he has got nowhere else to turn. He he tried um, running up to the Philistine, one of their towns, and he got run out of there. So now he can't stay in Judah, he can't stay in Philistine, in uh, the area occupied by the Philistines. He's really got no place to go. So he just finds a cave and he lives there. And so when when I'm reading this, I think, man, if ever you think you have problems in your life, just imagine yourself in David's shoes. He's got no home. He's got no job. He no longer has a family. He is separated from his wife. He has no friends. And he has no place to go. And he's living in a cave. This isn't like, you know, your DeSoto Caverns kind of cave. This is, a, this is a, a dark, a damp place. And it's representative of his life. Um, I've, I've gone caving uh, some when I was stupid and in college. And uh, I remember trying to get through a cave. And it said you could take two days and you could wind your way through and get to the other side of the mountain. And and my grandmother gave me glow-in-the-dark stars and put them on my body and said, maybe that will help guide your way. And, uh, and after over 24 hours of going through this cave, and the glow-in-the-dark stars are, of course, gone, and uh, we're trying to squeeze through this little hole, all of a sudden the cave got oppressive to me. Just being that long in the dark and in the damp, I, I, just, I just wanted to get out. But I was 24 hours from getting out. And you just feel this crushing weight of earth on you. This is where David is. He just feels the crushing weight of of all of life is just kind of hitting him at this moment as he's in the cave. I'm not sure what people told you when you became a Christian and what your life should look like. But if they told you that everything was going to turn out roses, 
the moment that you were filled with the Spirit and you decided to follow the Lord, uh, you, you were sold a bag of lies. Because that is not what happens here. Jesus promises us many things. He promises us peace, comfort. He promises us life. But he never promises us an easy life. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So he promises us a cross. And what he asks you to do is actually to lay down your life. Whoever tries to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. That's what's promised. And so we lay down our lives before God when we follow him. The only reason David is in a cave, hear me, the only reason is because he was following Jesus. If he had decided not to follow Jesus, he wouldn't be here. But all of these bad things have happened because of his pursuit of his Savior. There is joy. There's joy in following the Lord. And David, I am certain in these times of darkness, had an underlying joy that the Spirit sustained him. But as a Christian, don't think that the joy the Lord gives you is just an end in itself. Just as Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is to be our strength. The joy of the Lord is our undergirding to serve him when things get bad. Let's look at what David does when he's in this dark place. Um, he does what any good artist does when they're in a dark place. He decides to write. Um, he, he writes some songs. I don't know what it is, but uh, musicians typically can't write songs when they're in a good mood. And uh, they, they need to be in that dark place. You know, that you know, Taylor Swift has to be in a bad place to write Never or something like that. Um, bad example. Uh, but it's, it's, it's in those horrible times that really this, this creative longing comes out. And that happened to David. David begins pouring out his soul. Actually, the psalm that we read to start the service was written in the cave of Abdullah. That, that song of rejoicing when David is pouring out his heart. And actually, if David prayed like he prayed in the cave, if he prayed like that when he, when he later gets in the palace... He wouldn't have the troubles he's going to have when he gets in the palace. But the cave brought him to his knees. The cave led him to praise. And I want us to look at one of those songs that he sang in the night. Turn to Psalm 142. This is also a psalm that David wrote during this time of darkness. This is likely a psalm that he wrote when he first got there. The psalm that we opened up the service with is likely a psalm shortly before he left. So Psalm 142. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my troubles before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. 
Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of this prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. This is a beautiful prayer of both distress and also trust. One of the themes throughout this is loneliness. You know, you look at verse verse 4 here, and he's saying, Look to the right, and I see there's no one who takes notice of me. There's no one who remains for me. There's no one who cares for my soul. David is completely alone, and he's feeling this, this horrible loneliness closing in around him, just like the darkness is. And, but look how it ends. The last part of verse 7 says, The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David here, he's, he's praying and he's trusting the Lord for friends. In this dark time, what David, he's longing for more than anything, he doesn't say, God, give me wealth. He doesn't say, give me power. Don't put me on a throne. That's not in his mind. What he says is, God, I need a community around me that will love me, that will sustain me. I need a community that will be gracious to me. Let the righteous surround me. That's the, that's the longing of David's heart in this time. And I bet it is the longing for many of your hearts. It's not that, that you long you know, to have a better job or more money or, or, or more uh, power or fame or anything like that. But really, probably the longing in your heart is that you could be part of a community that loves one another. A community that will know you and will love you and will build you up. That you would be surrounded by the righteousness, by the righteous community. And that is David's prayer. And God hears this prayer and he answers it. But I can guarantee you he answers it in a way that David absolutely did not see coming, that David did not expect. Look back at 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 22. We'll read it again. It's just two verses. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was in bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Not at all what David's expecting or hoping for. David's family finds out where he is. David might have been here for weeks or even months at this time, living alone. And his family comes to him. Likely they had to flee from Saul as well, because if Saul's trying to kill David, he's going to try to kill David's family. But the only thing we know about David's family is, one, his father didn't believe in him, because he didn't even bring him before Samuel as an option for king. The only other thing we know about his brothers is that they called him evil when he went to go visit them in battle. And so David doesn't have a great relationship with his family. And then you look at the people that came to him. I mean, it was, it's those who were uh, in distress, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, 
Everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. I mean, come on, when, when you're asking God, you're like, God, I'm in a really dark place. I, I really need some friends here. Could you, could you please just maybe send me somebody extra needy? I mean, I, I really need somebody extra needy, really demanding, going to take up a lot of my time. Um, you know, I, I don't really have any resources, too. So can, can you give somebody who's in debt and I'm going to have to help them out? We, we don't pray for those things. We don't even look for those things when we're in a dark place. That's not the community we're trying to find. But that's the community that God gave David. No one wants this, but it's how God answered his prayer. Now, when, when I read this, the image that comes to my mind is the, uh, the Rudolph uh, little movie cartoon, whatever it is that comes on every Christmas when Rudolph goes off to the island of misfit toys. You all remember that? That's what this is here. That's what the church is. We're the island of misfit toys, all right? That's who God calls together. And in this strange way, we become a community. This beautiful thing. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. I was actually reminded of this, that that I am a fool when I was coming here earlier to set up I was outside the doors here um, at Cornerstone, and I got out my keys, and for some reason the door didn't open because I was pressing the open button to my car, and I just kept pressing it, and I just kept pressing it. I was like, why is this not unlocking? And I just think, what, what is wrong with me? I, I am a foolish idiot, and now I'm here. This is the one you are listening to, is the one outside the door hitting his car. But, but I'm not ashamed because God uses foolish things in the world. He uses those who are weak, those who don't have any power. So the church is full of of foolish, weak nobodies. Those are the people that were drawn to God's anointed. Those are the people that were drawn to Jesus. This description we read here reads very similar to almost every gospel when it talks about the poor, the oppressed, those who were sick flocked to Jesus. So we see here clearly, I believe, what the church should look like, in which we consist of desperate, hurting, bitter people who feel some way we can find healing around this one, one person. This is what Jesus did when he picked his closest friends, when he picked the 12 disciples. He did not pick the educational or the cultural elite. Um, he, he didn't pick, you know, the person with the big lake house or the person with the, you know, extra season tickets so that he might, you know, bum a, a ticket sometime. Or he, he picked people who had nothing to offer. He, he picked fishermen. All right, fishermen are not exactly known for their sophistication. 
They're not known for their refinement or their education. He, he picked some hotheads. He picked some skeptics. He uh, picked a tax collector. And then he picked a zealot whose political party killed tax collectors. All to be part of his inner circle. I, you know, when I, when I just kind of think through the different viewpoints and everything of what his disciples, the personalities, the political views that they had. It's kind of like, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich being called to be, come together, be best friends. It just, it just wouldn't happen. But that's what Jesus called together is these conflicting personalities. So don't picture the disciples, you know, just always sitting around the fire singing Kumbaya or something like that. I mean, you've heard you never talk politics or religion. What do you think they talked about? There was lots of fighting, I'm sure. But they were there for one reason, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ pulling them together despite all of their differences. This is what biblical community looks like. And I really think the church needs to understand this. Because... A lot of people go to church to find a community. Perhaps you, you go to you know, your home group. I'm going to find this community. And in your mind, what you're saying is, I want to find people who are just like me. I, I want to find that group that I can just kind of slide right in. We have so much in common. We're going to get along. You know, that's, that's great, but that's not biblical community. All right? Biblical community is when you really, you don't have many things in common except for the Savior who unites us. All right? And, and your job as the church isn't so much to, to find community as it is to reflect the gospel. It's for when the world looks in and they see such conflicting personalities loving one another, serving one another, like, how is that possible? Jesus. They'll never ask that question if you're always around people who are just like you, people who share the same views as you, same, same interests as you. That will not reflect Jesus. The church is not a country club. The church is a hospital. And it's a hospital for the broken and for the hurting. And Jesus heals us. These are the type of people that gathered around David. They gathered around God's anointed one and they made him their captain or their ruler. And what a good captain does is transform these group of nobodies into somebodies. And that is what David does to these people. In 2 Samuel 23, we get a description of these exact same men. All right? It's the exact same people. Now they're no longer just this, uh, you know, island of misfit toys here. That, that they're an army. They're mighty men. And we don't know if this took weeks, we don't know if this took months, but before they left this cave, they had become a new people. And so look at this description here in chapter 23. We saw the story here of the, the three people who, they were so mighty that they overheard David in a moment of weakness, probably, longingly say, oh, I wish I had some water from Bethlehem, his hometown. And these guys are so incredible. They're, they're, they're such studs at this point that they hear it and they're like, we're going to get it. That is an insane plan to do. 
Uh, that means going to, it says there was a whole garrison there. A garrison is at least 20 soldiers. The well was by the gate, which was uphill in the most fortified area. So three soldiers battle people uphill. And then while they get to the gate, two of them are holding off all the other guards while somebody scoops up some water, puts it in a flask. And then they go down battling all these other people and somehow bring it before David. These are mighty men. And what David does with this absolutely just astonishes me, but it tells so much about how he was transforming this community and who he was pointing them towards. When when I first read David's reaction when when they did this, it ticked me off. I I really got angry. You know, the, the scene I picture is these three sweaty, probably bloody men coming into the cave. And they kneel before David and they say, here, we heard you ask for water from Bethlehem. And here it is. And you have every, every eye, 400 men, fixed on him. And David takes the flask and he pours it out. When I read that, I thought, jerk. I mean, that was my first reaction. like, what a jerk to do that. In my mind, it went like this, you know. I can just imagine if, uh, if I wanted to give somebody a, a nice gift, perhaps a gift certificate to a, um, a nice restaurant. Church. Well, I don't know. Some nice restaurant. Well, Highlands Bar and Grill. All right, there we go. Highlands Bar and Grill. So I, I eBay some of my items. I, I work, you know, some extra jobs, mow lawns, whatever it is, and I can come up with a gift certificate that will pay for an appetizer or something like that. And, and, I, and I, give, I give this person this gift certificate, and they grab it, and they don't say thanks, and they tear it up and throw it to the ground. I'd be a little angry. That's kind of what David does here, but not quite. The key to understanding what he's doing is in verse 17. Or verse, we'll look at the end of verse 16. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. He poured it out to the Lord. David didn't just pour it out. He, he poured it out as a drink offering, as an act of worship to the Lord. Now any other king would have said, my men exist to serve me. My men are below me. Therefore, I am the one worthy of this and would have gladly taken it. And what David is saying is, no man is worthy of this offering. Not me. And he points us to another and he he pours it out as a drink offering to the Lord. He says, look at the Lord. And he doesn't thank these men. He doesn't say, guys, thank you so much for this incredible sacrifice. He doesn't put put them up on a pedestal, give them medals, glorify them in any way. All glory goes to the Lord in this. And the reason is he knows that, yes, these men are mighty. Yes, these men are strong. Yes, these men act bravely. But all it would have taken was one stray arrow. And they would have died. All it would have taken was one unseen guard coming up from behind and the mission would have been a failure. And yes, these men did all this, but ultimately it was the Lord 
The Lord allowed this. And that's how he was, what he was teaching his community, that all the gifts we have, everything that we bring to the table, it's the Lord's. You might think you are where you are because you've worked really hard, you've studied really hard, you've made the most of every opportunity, you've made wise investments, therefore, yes, I've made it where I am. Let me tell you, that is a lie. Everything you have is due to the Lord. There are people who are smarter, who have worked harder, who have tried to seize every opportunity, who never made it, who never had doors open. You are one blood vessel popping from losing everything. You could have been born in another country to another people, to another family. You are who you are because of God. Nobody made these soldiers probably six foot three and muscular. God did. And so David gave credit to who it was due. And when they begin to understand that they are everything, even their noble acts, are purely a gift from God, and that he alone is worthy of worship, they become this radically transformed community. They become mighty men. As they surround around their captain, they are changed and transformed by him. So do you see the kind of community that David is building here? This indeed becomes the righteous community that he prays for. They start off as the island of misfit toys. They they start off as bitter and soul and needy. But they become loyal. They become fierce fighters. They become a community community that will never boast in their own achievements. A community that will give glory to the Lord. And this is the community that God has called you to be a part of in the church. What this reminds me of when you look at these two stories together, just think of Jesus and his disciples before Pentecost and afterwards. When Jesus first gathers his disciples, man, they're nothing. I mean, they're at, they're at, nobody would select those 12. And then he gives them his spirit. Then he dwells inside them. And, and as they are with him, and he, he begins transforming them. And then look at them after Pentecost. They are set on fire and they turn the world upside down. They become mighty men. Simply because they've been in his presence. That's what the church is called to be. I remember seeing this happen at the University of Georgia one time. I was in a, a group, small group, whatever you would call it. None of us were alike. It, it was hard work for us to try to be together. And there was one guy, ironically, his name was David. All right? And uh, he had a bowl haircut. He uh, dressed horribly. Um, I, I could hardly understand what he said half the time. Uh, I'll, I, I mean, I'll just say it. He was what, when you think of a loser, you think of this guy, all right? And I remember that uh, the pastor at the ministry I was in said, whoever wants to get up and share, they could share, which is always dangerous. And uh, this guy got up and walked forward, and I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, no. And he preached for about 15 minutes, And it blew me away. One of the best sermons I've ever heard. 
And it was just such a demonstration of God using weakness for glory. And I remember just feeling so ashamed because I now look back at that small group that I was in and I thought I was the chosen one. I was the one who had all the gifts. I was the one who brought so much to the table. And really everything that I brought, Paul would later say, he called it refuse. It was refuse. All that mattered was being in the Lord's presence and the transforming power that came from that. So God taught me so much, and my my view of community and church changed a lot that day and what God had called me to be a part of and how I could, through all these other people who are so different from me, give myself to them, love them, and watch God create something beautiful. That's what God is calling us to do as his church. Pray with me. God, we don't confess to be anybody anybody at all apart from you. We are misfits. We are losers. We are foolish. We have no power. We are needy people, bitter in our soul. Yet we want to come to you, Jesus. We want to come to you where you are. And we want you to heal us and to transform us and to change us and to make us like you. So God, I pray that through your spirit, you would do that. And God, we recognize your grace upon our lives. Everything we are, everything is a gift from you. And so we give you thanks and praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.